Hi everyone, Andy here. This is a special announcement for folks who listen to the show via Spotify. You can now support the pod directly through Spotify for less than the price of a coffee each month, giving you ad-free content, no sponsorships, early access and bonus shows as well. So many of you have chosen to support the show through Patreon and Apple Premium, and I appreciate this has been a long time coming for Spotify listeners. Just search That UFO Podcast Premium in Spotify, or click the link in this description for this announcement. I am working my way through to upload the entire back catalogue with no sponsors or advertising in there, and you can already listen to the latest interview with ex-CIA officer John Ramirez and some of our popular AMAs, with a new one of those coming soon just for premium members. Otherwise, Apple Premium is still available with a two-week free trial as well, again from less than the price of a coffee, or you can sign up for Patreon for the additional benefits that come with those tiers. Again, thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and just listens to the shows. Lots of great content to come. This is Lou Elizondo, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's Creator Network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one, that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am delighted to welcome an independent investigative journalist focused on bringing credible information about hidden paranormal and impossible realities into the mainstream. She is the author of the award-winning book Surviving Death, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for an Afterlife, which was also turned into a six-part Netflix series and the book UFOs, Generals, Pilots and Government Officials Go on the Record. She's also a speaker at the upcoming An Inquiry into Anomalous Experiences and the Phenomenon Conference being hosted in New York City. More to come on that later. Without any further delay or introduction, allow me to welcome Leslie Kane to the podcast. Hi, Andy. So good to be with you. Good to have you. And I'm glad I got through that. That's why I asked for 90 minutes just to get through that introduction. So... You know what? I don't know if you heard me laugh, but when you said the surviving death, it sounded like you said turned into a sex pot. (laughs) That's what I heard because you said six part, but it sounded like sex pot. 
I don't know why it's probably got to do with your accent. So that's why I, I laughed. I hope I didn't interrupt, but I couldn't. No, like... people, people will love that. The accent's a regular topic of conversation on the podcast. And we were just talking about that before we hit record. Um, it might be a sex pot for some people. Maybe that's their thing, you know, but hey, Netflix has got all kinds on there for all kinds. So listen, let's get straight into it, Leslie. Uh, first off, I like to ask my guests how they first got involved or had an interest in the ufo subject how far back does your your interest in ufos go it goes back to 1999 actually um and that's it all started when i was working at a public radio station in california on the west coast of the united states um and i was working as a producer and a host of a daily investigative news program and a colleague from france sent me in the mail this 90-page study called the Cometa Report, which probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with, but um, it was it was 90 pages of analysis of U- official UFO cases, you know, really good cases with a lot of data, pilots, and mainly pilot cases, military cases, and this very distinguished group wrote it, which included generals and admirals and police of chief, uh, chief police and former space experts, and a lot. They were all retired, and they were part of a think tank in France. And anyway, they they analyzed all these cases. And what really struck me as a reporter was they drew the conclusion that the best explanation for what they for the cases they studied was the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And they kind of it was just written right out in black and white, very methodically. You know, well, this is kind of the only this is our best conclusion. We can't prove it, but um, it seems the most likely explanation. And I just thought, you know. If even one of these cases was that, it would be a major story. So I was very struck by this report. It was like 90 pages and very authoritative. And because of who the authors were, you know, I it, I knew that I could maybe do something with this as a reporter because of this, this you know, who the authors were. And so um, that's how I first got into it. What I did with that report was I ended up pitching a story to the Boston Globe, which is a a major paper in Boston, Massachusetts. It's actually owned by the New York Times. And um, it's because I had written stories for the Boston Globe prior to this. And so I knew the editor of the Sunday section quite well, and she really liked my work. Of course, I'd written about other topics, not about UFOs. And so she was willing to take this on, but it was such a different world then, Andy. I mean, it was so hard to get that story in the Boston Globe. And and a lot of the editors I went to at other papers who who knew me, because I was a freelance writer then. So in those days, you could just sort of submit stories to a lot of newspapers. It wasn't like it is today. And um, they all liked me, but most of them wouldn't touch this. And I would even try to not say the word UFO when I pitched the story to them on the phone, you know? It was just like there were the stigma was so intense. And this 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 um, editor for the Sunday Globe uh, Sunday review section, you know, was really at one point she just she said, we're not doing it. You know, she and then I went back to her and I said, well, look, why don't we change this and let's change this. And it was heavily edited, you know, all of that. But she finally came out with that story and it was a long piece. It was like more than half of, of a full page on the you know, on the, on the in the section. So. Um, and it wasn't just about that report, but I also did some research into American national security issues and stuff like that around UFOs. So that's what really got me started. I mean, the, the response to that story from the UFO community was just so ecstatic because I, you know, no, no one in the mainstream 
writes about this in mainstream newspapers. No one had at that time. I mean, there were some reporters doing it, doing more good work in their local areas. Like, of course, George Knapp had been doing this forever, but he was based in Los Angeles and Las Vegas. I mean, you know, and he worked for the TV network there and did great work. But this was like a, a mainstream newspaper and, and the story went out on the wire. So it was picked up in other papers across the country. So anyway, everybody in the UFO community was very happy about it. And that was, there was no turning back for me at that point. I was so, you know, inspired to learn more about this topic. And I was kind of amazed at how strong the taboo was. And I wanted to kind of understand what that was about. And so I basically ended up eventually leaving the radio station and just devoting myself to this full time. But so it's been, it's that my first story came out in May of 2000. So it's been 22 years really since I've been writing and publishing on UFOs. It sounds to me like you had to have a lot of credit in the bank just to get the editor to to get that story published eventually. And I wonder, was it the case they tried to almost convince you out of putting that sort of subject out there with the stigma and taboo? And and given that that positive reaction, was there no appetite for a follow-up from the Boston Globe, for example, to say, look, we got a great reaction from this, let's do more? Well, um, so the first question was, um, were they trying to get me not to do it? I mean, all they could do is just say, no, we don't want your story. There's, you know, and everybody else except the Globe did that because I, I called a bunch of people um, and she didn't, you know, she was just very nervous, you know, because it was considered like a tabloid subject then, you know. So a follow up I did. I, my next story was I came out a year later and it was about pilot cases that affected aviation safety. And I did go back to the Boston Globe at that point. But it turns out that editor had left the paper. So between my first and second story, she had left the paper. So unfortunately, the edit, the people there, the woman who was there, I forget who replaced her, but they weren't interested in this. Unfortunately, I wish she hadn't left. But I, but the second story went into the Providence, Providence Journal, which is Providence, Rhode Island. It's a very small state, but the, this story went all over the place on the wires. I mean, it got a lot more play than the first one did, and it was about um, a, a report that had come out of the organization called NARCAP, which studies aviation safety cases, written by Richard Haynes, a former NASA senior scientist, um, and all about these cases that impacted aviation safety. So I jumped off of that report and did some research into cases that, you know, that affected aviation safety, both for commercial pilots and military pilots. And I thought, you know, this is a, this is a reason that the status quo can care about this. You know, it's not, it, it's like there's a reason to be concerned because this affects aviation safety. And it was a good hook in that way. So at, at what point did you start putting together the idea for the book in, for 2010? Obviously, that's UFOs, generals, pilots and government officials go on the record, which already sounds a lot like the report. You mentioned it got your initial interest. Was that where the idea for the book was seeded or did that come later? Um, wait, now, which report did you mean? Oh, the Cometa report? Yes. Yeah. No, the, well, the title of that was UFOs and Defense. What are we prepared for? It was very much focused on national security concerns, that that initial report from France. It was very much like these things are out there. So what are we going to do about it? We've got to inform our pilots. You know, we've got to take them seriously. But um, so that but so my that second story was really it was quite. different. So anyway, my book, my book title was quite different. But the way I got to the book was I kept reporting on UFOs 
the book came out 10 years after I started. So during those 10 years, I did a whole series of articles. Um, I did press conferences. I filed a lawsuit against NASA, which was successful. It took years and years and years about one other case. Um, and I also started working with John Podesta. I mean, I didn't really work with him, but he was, he was an influential part of the administration who was very supportive of my work. And, um, you know, just dug into a lot of cases, got to know people, kept reporting. And then in 2007, um, I teamed up with James Fox, the filmmaker, who now has the movie out called Moment of Contact, which is amazing. Um, and we organized a press conference in Washington in 2007, in which we invited about, I don't know, maybe 13, something like that, um, people from all over the world uh, to come and testify at this or, you know, give statements at this press conference in Washington. And um, they were from many countries. I forget how many, maybe eight different countries or something like that. And a lot of them were military pilots and investigators that had worked for governments and, you know, people that had experienced this directly. But, and so it was at that press conference, I was so impressed with these people and I got to meet a lot of these uh, people from other countries who only got to give statements for five minutes at this press conference. And I thought, you know, they have so much more to offer than a five minute statement. So I thought it would be really great to, to do a book in which I could invite them to contribute basically. So then I started working on the book and it really, it, it involved chapters actually written by these people. I mean, I'd say about half the book is written by other people, not by me. So I thought, you know, rather than have the Iranian general Parviz Jafari, right, rather than me interview him about what was it like to try and shoot down this UFO over Iran, I had him just tell the whole story in his own words as, you know, so you get to hear directly from them in a whole chapter. And and I I worked with them all in various ways, depending on their needs for my, you know, assistance and stuff. But yeah, so then I, I thought that's what really inspired the book. I think that was your question. And then I, I really think one of the reasons it was so successful was because of the power of those chapters written by these incredibly high level, highly credentialed people that I don't think anybody was really going to question them. You know, there's also the former governor of Arizona wrote a, wrote him something for my book about the Phoenix Lights case. And also John Podesta wrote the foreword to the book. And so but what was what you know so anyway it was um yeah it was really really a powerful moment and i think i think that even though i'd worked 10 years in the media to try to crack the taboo i think it really wasn't that successful until the book came out and then there was a little bit of a crack cuz it got a lot of attention um so but nothing like 2017 i said there's sort of pre 2017 and yeah. post you know so of all the things i did Pre-2017, I would say my book was the thing that made the most impact and, you know, had the most, if anything changed, that book did it more than anything else. Yeah. And, um, and we're certainly going to get to 2017, but I just want to ask, was there any part of you in 2010, writing that book, putting it together, putting it out, seeing the reaction that you could have foreseen the landscape changing to what it would become post-2017? That's a great question. I mean, I certainly was hoping and asking for it to change. I I don't know. I don't remember if I ever thought it, I didn't really didn't know if it ever would. I thought, probably thought it was less likely than likely, 
but what's interesting is I, I made, you know, the, my book back then, it was so basic. And now, now it just seems primitive, you know, I was just really making the point, number one, that UFOs are physically real, right? That they're real objects. And number two, that they need to be investigated by the scientific community. And number three, they need to invest investigated by the U.S. government because they impact national security and aviation safety. And all three of those things have, there might have been one more point I made, I don't remember, but the things I was advocating, oh, and so I, you know, basically I was saying there needs to be a government agency set up to do this, right? And I was sort of advocating for that throughout the book, and so were some of my writers. And then it's turned out now, you know, so this was like, you know, 12 years later, or even earlier, that everything I asked for in that book has come to pass. That's what's so amazing to me that, you know, the government has acknowledged that UFOs are real. They are physical objects. It's been acknowledged many times over and that they've, they, there is an agency which we discovered and they've now set up another task force. And, you know, the scientists are coming on board to study it and government officials are studying it and the Congress is into it and everything. So I really it, it's everything I hope for in writing the book has come to pass. But whether I thought it actually would or not, I, I probably really didn't necessarily expect it would, you know, there was nothing to indicate at the time that there was any interest. And the irony is that 2007, when we gave this press conference that led to my book, was the same year that the program, the precursor program to ATIP was was being set up at the DIA, of course, totally in secret. Yeah. Um, just before again, we get to 2017, I wonder, would you have any plans to release a second edition or sequel to that initial book, given I'm sure your contacts book and sources have increased several fold since then? I don't have such a plan. Uh, I just don't. I mean, the, the book sort of stands as a, as a book. And I think people still benefit from it now who don't know much about the topic. But I think um, if I ever wrote another book, it'd probably be a completely different book, you know, but I, I don't have any plans at this moment to write another book. Well, your next, your next, like you say, milestone, uh, 2017, you wrote an article with Ralph Blumenthal and Helene Cooper, who, uh, Helene often gets left off of the, the acknowledgements by people, I think, because she's never really came out in a public way. Uh, I suppose yourself and Ralph have put yourself out there a little bit more for people like myself to speak to, which is appreciated, but I could understand why anyone wouldn't do that, given the landscape and, and some of the, the conversations that go on. But that, that article truly changed the UFO conversation. That That's not an exaggeration. Did you think at the time writing that article, either individually or as a trio, that this is going to have a huge impact? And, and what was the expectation? I mean, I thought it would have a huge impact. I don't think, I don't know if Helene, Helene knew about how, how intense, she didn't necessarily... She was surprised by the intensity of the response. Let's put it that way. She she knew it was an interesting story and she wanted to do it, you know. And she's the one that really made it possible for us to do it. It's the irony of the fact that, you know, that she was sort of in the background because she's not like into UFOs, right? She's just a, a Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times who got who worked on this one story and then she went about her business doing covering everything else that she normally covers. I mean, she's an outstanding reporter who's on the front page of the Times all the time covering, you know, Ukraine and Iraq and Iran and all kinds of issues. Um, and, you know, things at the Pentagon. Um, 
She's just an amazing reporter. So it was kind of different for her because Ralph and I both had this history with the topic and she hadn't had that history. She didn't really know what to expect, but I, um, I really thought it was going to be a big deal. Uh, I really did. Um, just knowing, having been involved for so long and seeing what a leap this was and having Lou Elizondo on the record and having Harry Reid on the record, you know, made all the difference. I just want to say to everybody, since you brought up Helene Cooper, there's going to be a little special something at the conference on December 3rd, which we can talk about later, but to, it's going to be a special little something that I'm going to offer as a tribute to Helene Cooper and everybody's going to really enjoy it. So I just want to plug her at that moment. But anyway, yeah, I mean, so I, I knew it would be a big deal, but I guess none of us knew how big a deal it would be, really. I mean, it was just stunning what happened after that story came out. I'm going to be completely honest and admit that I do love a bit of cool technology, but not all the best tech is classified. So when Blendjet got in touch about their new Blendjet 2.0, I was very excited to try it out, especially as one of those protein shake people that many folks hate. Just shaking never has the same results as a blender does, let's be fair. Blend Jet 2 is portable so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blend Jet 2 is whisper quiet so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house, a big one for me folks, and it lasts for 15 or more blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, Blend Jet 2 cleans itself, just blend with water water, a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 colours available there are something for everyone. Personally I'm a huge fan of the carbon fibre. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code THATUFO12 to get 12% off, remember folks, and that free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. The article, I mean, I got back into the UFO topic in a big way after that came out, um, years before I had any stupid ideas like starting a podcast on the subject. And... I think many people were affected by it. They either had an introduction or a reintroduction back into the world of UFOs. And I wonder, given your knowledge of the community and the reactions from your book and such, were there any frustrations that came up that were unexpected? Was there anything that came off the back of it that would, that disappointed you? Um, you mean with regards to the to the New York Times story or yeah, the, the December 2017 article. Yeah. Was there anything off the back of it that you didn't expect in a negative way? Um, well, I think there was a little confusion about, you know, whether we should have mentioned the, the OSAP program. I mean, there was some pushback about that and there were a whole lot of reasons why we didn't, but no, I would, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's always the debunkers that come out of the woodwork and take the videos. I mean, a lot of what made that story so popular was those videos. The Fleer and the Gimbal video were released, and I think that was a lot of what drew people to that story, The you know, the regular person. Um, and there are, of course, debunkers that tried to debunk the videos. But no, I mean, I, I felt it all as a very positive 
kind of project, uh, pro, you know, progression of things that happened after that, you know, especially when Congress started to get more interested in it and um, people were taken into brief people, some of the pilots and others were started to brief members of Congress. I mean, that was a huge step forward, which hadn't happened before. So, um, no, I mean, I, I don't, I tend to sort of focus on the positive anyway and not dwell on the negative too much. No, that, that's that's good to hear. And the article has <clears> been discussed ad nauseum by many people and I'm sure by yourself. So we won't dwell on it too much. And I've talked about it so many times on the podcast in various different ways. Pe- people know it inside and out. There have been well, follow up. Yeah. yeah. I just Please, want to add on. that we were under absolute strict control by our editors. I mean, the, the level of of involvement of the editors at the New York Times was really intense. And I mean, we, we, we would have liked to have included some things that we couldn't include because of the editors. And we had to add in, they wanted us to add in, you know, skeptical opinions and this kind of stuff. And they just micromanage the story. So it's a little bit hard when you work really, really hard and you're coming up against that kind of control and then people criticize you for what you've done. You know, it's not like there was one criticism. I remember that um, we didn't talk enough about the UFOs themselves and what the, what the program had actually learned about UFOs. It was all about who funded it and, you know, who, how it was set up and Robert Bigelow got the contract to do this and that. And, and, it's like that was what the Times was willing to, to publish, you know. Um, so anyway, I just kind of want people to know that there was a really intense level of control and the editors were almost like co-writing it. They weren't really, you know, I mean, when you do a story, you you the, you you sign off as the authors. If if you don't like some edits, if you really want to fight the edits and don't and, and you're, you know, then you negotiate with them. But. It's not like they can force you to do something, but they have a lot of power and you have to agree as the writers to accept their edits. But anyway, I just want people to know that there was a lot of control, a lot of editing for the New York Times on this story. And it's not it's not surprising to me that there was, given the nature of the subject. No, of course. And I think naturally I've got to ask, you, you say there were things you wanted to put in there that you weren't allowed and are there things that you still can't talk about? Obviously, you won't mention that here, but is there anything now that you could say almost five years, we're one month away from the five-year anniversary of that article, that now you could say this was going to go in, but for some reason it didn't? Yeah, I mean, it was really also because of space limitations. You know, there's a certain amount of words that you're allowed to write, and there were certain things that were priorities. And, you know, an example being... um we, we, you know, we would have, I would have liked to write a little more about what the program had to say about UAP. You know, what did they discover? Uh, what worth, you know, what something about um, just the characteristics of the objects and, and uh, the, what did the data show that they had spent five years or more than that studying just something along those lines. I mean, I, I can't go into too much detail about it, but um you know, and I think we kind of did that with the next story, which was in May of 2019, when we when we focused on the pilot cases, and that was when Ryan Graves came forward and took, you know he came through in our story in another pilot. We talked about the East Coast sightings off the Roosevelt, and I think, and that story 
got even more hits than the first one. It got more attention. And I think it was because we were talking about the UFOs themselves, the objects, what they looked like and how they behaved and how did the pilots react and how did, you know, what did the pilots do when they encountered them? That kind of thing is really, really fascinating to people. Plus we had, I think we had another video with that story as well, which had already come out, but it hadn't come out in the times. And so I, I remember that was, I think it was the 10th or something in the, in the, so every year at the end of the year, the New York Times issues their 100 most read stories of the previous year. And that story, I believe, was number 10 of all the stories in the New York Times for the whole year. It was really, really popular. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, so I'm just making the point that people like to read more about the objects and the mystery of the UFOs than they do about how much the program was funded and who who set it up and all of that. I think there's an element as well of that that first article laid the foundation for for what was to come for many people and to get people back looking at the subject. And, you know, no one visits the hotel when they're building the foundation, but once it's open, they'll come to visit. And I suppose a lot of that was was what that second and subsequent articles has done. There was another, there were several follow-ups, like you say, after December 2017. And one that really got people talking ahead of time was July 2020, where you, you'll know yourself better than I, the expectation online amongst the UFO community um, was that there was going to be a, a full expose on crash retrieval programs within the US government is essentially what the was being blown up online. What came out, while fantastic work, was not quite as sensationalist as some people had reported would come out. Um, was there a what-could-have-been story there, or is what came out the original intended narrative and story? Um, yeah, then that buzz online really did not help, <laughs> didn't help us at all. It's really hard when people do that uh, for the writers. And um, But anyway... Um, I, you know, I, I don't feel like I can, I'm not supposed to say a whole lot about our process with the times, but just let's just, just to say, uh, we certainly had more information than was included in that article. And we had a certain length in which we could work and we had a, an editor that we had to respond to. And that's the best, you know, it's the best we could do at the time, given yeah. all the circumstances we had to deal with. Um, and I think how it got blown up so much online. I'm sure they were very disappointed when they read the article. <laughs> Excuse me, but just to have anything at all about crash retrievals in the New York Times is a big accomplishment. Just to have anything to have a quote from Eric Davis saying and Lou, Lou Elizondo talking about it is, you know, I mean, it it wasn't easy to get what little we did get to get it into that paper. Yeah, so. just to have that phrasing like off-world vehicles in there in any way, shape or form is an achievement, let alone, you know, having the New York Times publish statements like that. I get why some people were disappointed, but that was more of their own doing than anything else. You know, it's like one of the Marvel movies coming out and not quite having the ending you hoped for. But, you know, you never made the movie. You're just there to watch it. Um, and I get why that would be frustrating on the author's end as well, that you're putting in that hard work and effort. And no doubt, given just the very nature of crash retrievals and off-world vehicles, recovered materials, even if you've got some very good sources and you can go to an editor at any paper, let alone the New York Times, and say, look, I want to write this, is there just some things that right now are still too sensational to put into print? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the real problem with that is that you don't have they're they're all classified, right? If if we have crash materials, they're buried in in secret access programs, and we don't have people on the record giving us any proof that they exist. So that's for a paper like the New York Times. That's what you need. You need corroboration. You need documentation. You don't just put it in because somebody says it, which is really what we did. It was just you have to rely on the authority of the person making the statement. But even when you have a real authority making the statement, it's very hard to, to not have more. You know, so they, they had to qualify these statements by saying there is no proof that these exist, you know, and and that's absolutely true. And if, if to whatever and, you know. I mean, I certainly have sources that talk to me off the record, but off the record is off the record. So that's one of the problems with writing about that particular issue is that it's all classified and you can't document it or prove it or say where they are or what they've learned about them or how long they've had them or where they were retrieved or anything, right? So people can write blogs and speculate about all of that or have, and also people can use unnamed sources sometimes. Like I think Politico does that. We do not do that in the New York times. We have to get people on the record, which means they give us their names and we can't write a story based on what three anonymous sources tell us, even though Julian Bards did that in a recent article for the New York times, but certainly Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Kane are not going to be able to, we're not doing that. You know, we're, we're not, and we're freelancers. We're not staff. There's a difference. Um, and I, I do want people to know that, you know, we are, uh, Ralph and I are, are freelancers for the times, which means if we have a story, we pitch it to them. And if they go for it, we contribute a story at that particular time. And then we, we have nothing to do with the times other than our particular story. Yep. So, Julian Barnes is is a full-time staff member. He's a full-time high-level reporter for the New York Times. So he's going to have a he's, his situation is very different in that he's on the staff. And um we Ralph and I have no influence at all over what anybody else at the Times writes. So I just want to make sure people are clear about that that so that they don't mix us up with Julian Barnes. We're, we 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 have absolutely no relationship with each other and we have nothing to do with what he has nothing to do with what we write, and we have nothing to do with what he writes. Um, so I just, because I, I, as I, I was told that some people weren't clear about that, that you know it, we have nothing to do with the Julian Barnes uh, articles, any of the ones that he's done. And I did notice that they gave, they allowed him to use anonymous sources, but you know we don't do that. And so you know if we could have done that for crash retrievals, maybe we would have been able to print more. But with, with a topic like that, you've got to have names on the record. Well, if I was going to read my next question word for word, that begins, Julian Barnes recently wrote an article that many would see as a counterpoint to yours, Leslie. So I'll just expand on that since you've mentioned Julian and I was going to bring him up. Um, yours, Ralph's and Helene's work was uh, seemed to really remove some of that stigma from the UFO conversation that's been there for a long time. But for many, I think what they saw as an issue was Julian Barnes' take seemed to be an old-fashioned take on the UFO conversation, rubbishing sightings as airborne clutter, foreign drones and such. And let's be fair, a lot of these sightings in general are just that, which is which is fine. That's to be expected in this topic. Though, like you say, it admits only half the cases being referred to in the upcoming report, of which the rumour is 366, um, are actually identified. If that 
type of reporting, and I'm someone who at a very base level studied journalism when I was at university for a couple of years, that still comes across as biased reporting. And I wonder, does that surprise you, regardless of Julian Barnes' permanency at the New York Times or not? It's a very highly reputable paper. And I just wonder, given the effort you've gone to and the hoops you've jumped through to get your articles published, like you say, Julian Barnes wades in with a biased article that counters yours and, like you say, unnamed sources there as well. Yeah, so tell me what exactly is the question, because I may or may not be able to answer it. No, so does that sort of biased type of reporting surprise you? Or do you feel this is just the New York Times giving fair time to the other side of the argument when it comes to the ufo topic um that's a really good question and you know i don't i don't think it's a matter of giving time to the other side because we we just reported facts in our stories you know we didn't i don't think our stories were biased i mean no we included skeptical comments in all of them maybe not i don't know yeah we did in all of them and we're just reporting the facts I feel that I, I was surprised by his article. I had no idea it was coming out. I was as surprised as everybody else. Um, and it, you know, it's his perspective. It's his, I mean, it's obvious that the sources he had provided the information that he wrote about. And so he relied on certain sources to do that for him. And I, I have no idea what his bias is or what his, you know, I don't know anything about what went into that story. And, you know, I don't want to comment on it too much, but I was, I was surprised. That's for sure. And I suspect he'll do another one after this report comes out, if it ever does come out. Uh, I suspect he'll do another story then. He did an, he did a story following the June 2021 report, um, which, you know, of course, Ralph and I would have loved to have been able to cover that report. And we would have given it a context because we have so much knowledge that some just a staff, you know, that he did, he didn't have the context that we had. I think we could have done a really good job, but they're they're going to put their own people on their stories whenever they can. So he'll cover the the report, and we'll see what that's like. So, uh, yeah, I, I just can't go into it too much no no and I, I, it's not a case of you know warring journalists or people you know going against colleagues and such i would never want that either i just wondered again in broad terms though is there any danger of this signaling the new york times having a change in attitude towards the subject or do you feel again it's it's fair i just don't know i mean um i really don't know i all we can do is find out if ralph and i come up with another story and try to get it published. And we would just have to see what the future holds. Um, I mean, news stories are not supposed to represent any kind of position. So I think some people feel that perhaps his story was more like an an op-ed piece or an opinion piece. Cause every, you know, I know I hear you saying that you thought it was biased when you read Mm. it. Yep. So the people that feel that way have questioned perhaps this should have, you know, it's more like what they call an opinion piece or an op-ed um, because news stories are not supposed to be like that. They're not. So it, it really shouldn't be that the Times is taking any position on this at all. It should just be we're reporting the facts about this issue. So people have to interpret it however they however they want. Um, 
and you know, I did look at the com. There were like 258 comments or something to his article. Uh, and most of them were people in the comments were not happy with the story. So that's, I don't know what else to say. Um, Babbel is one of today's sponsors and they are the best way for you to begin to learn a new language. Immersing yourself in the language of your choice from day one through a whole range of learning styles including podcasts, games and online classes. It's available on desktop or through their app. Babbel's courses are created by didactics experts and focus on real-life situations. So if you're holidaying in France and spot a UFO, you can get locals' attention quickly and efficiently. The lessons are as short as 15 minutes and fit into any schedule and can be downloaded to work on offline while on the go. With the help of everyday dialogue exercises and the speech recognition software, learners can practice their pronunciation and regular vocabulary repetition ensures that what is learned is memorised over the long term. I can already hear some of you listeners getting in touch to tell me I should really learn English given my dodgy accent. When you buy a six-month subscription to Babbel, you receive six months extra for free by using the code AUDIO1. That's A-U-D-I-O-1, the number one. Pay for six months and learn for a whole year. Get info and redeem the code at babbel.com forward slash audio. Folks, today is the day you finally decide to make a life-changing decision and learn that new language. Well... But, thanks for um, thanks for commenting as much as you could because yeah. I appreciate it's an awkward position to be put in. Um, I do want to ask though, just as a last word on your series of articles with Ralph and Helene, and and whether you do any even on your own. It seems like it's been a almost like a franchise of articles, and it's been like the Marvel movies building to something. And I just wonder if your series of articles had now been written and there were no more to come on this topic with the New York Times, would you feel? a sense of unfinished business in that respect? I think if we if we can't publish in the New York Times, we will probably try to find another place to publish. I mean, I, Ralph and I feel very dedicated to our partnership as reporters in this. And, you know, uh, we only do certain kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to keep the door open at the New York Times. So we're certainly going to keep working there, uh, you know, if we can. If, if it ever becomes clear that we can't for some reason, uh, I don't think we're going to want to stop doing it. We'll just find another another venue where we can publish. So we do intend to keep doing it, but it's um, you know we 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 only do very important kind of you know really groundbreaking types of stories um, where we have people on the record and we have a lot of data to put into the story. So there, that, that's why we don't do them that often. And sometimes we have a story that the New York Times doesn't want, and then it doesn't. We don't end up doing it. So we just have to take everything as it comes. But uh, we do. We do intend to keep working together. We'll see what happens. Well, I'm sure the New York Times appreciate the clicks that go their way and the the buys of the papers. If people still buy print, uh, I know that's becoming more and more of an old fashioned thing. But uh, I am subscribed to one newspaper via my Gmail account, and it is the New York Times because of those articles that you were writing with your colleagues. So I'm sure there are many more people like myself that get a whole load of New York Times alerts every single day, but we're just hoping mm-hmm. that one of them pops up saying UFO or UAP in it. Um, so yeah, yeah, thank you again for that work. But listen, you mentioned, Leslie, the report that was due as of the 31st of October 
that was uh, to be submitted. As we record this, it's the 19th of November and it's still unreleased. So we're coming on three weeks. You had previously heard it was due to be delayed by a few days. You mentioned that on James Iandoli's podcast, Engaging the Phenomenon. Hello to James, I know you'll be listening. Um, <laughs> so any further updates or ideas why we're still waiting? Because at the time with James, you did say it's going to be delayed by a few days, I've heard. And you you sort of yeah. tail off and you say only a few days and I don't really have any inside scoop on this. I mean, the people I've talked to that know how things work in Washington have told me that it's very it's very common for a report to be delayed like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you can read into it what you want, but there it wasn't like a required deadline. I mean, Congress requested this report. So, and apparently this happens all the time in Congress. Congress will request a report and it's late. So, you know, I don't know why it's why it's late, but there are all kinds of reasons why reports in general are late, you know. So anyway, I'm not I just don't have an inside line to what's going on there into the in within the agency or anything. Um, I'm sure there are people that know more about it than I do, but I just I don't know what's going on. The issue for them being this one is about UFOs. So straight away, it's got the conspiracy tag on there. So all sorts of rumours start, don't they? Um, but I tend to leave those for other folks to discuss, which is always fair. Rumours are always fun, but... They're just not ready yet. They may just still be working on it. On that, know? though, I'll just say, personally, my expectations are that we're going to see 366 cases, of which half of them are identified, half of them aren't. But outside of that, I would imagine we're not going to see too much in terms of we're not going to see diagrams or pictures. We're not going to see videos attached to it. This is something that's been put together by Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick and a small team over the course of, what, seven months now since he started in that role. And it's, again, a baby steps. It's an early report. You'll remember as well as anyone, Leslie, back when the first report was due to come out, Christopher Mellon, Lou Elizondo and others were on mainstream media citing they need two to three years to put together a fully comprehensive report on this topic and that six to nine months was not enough time. I just wonder, what are your expectations for for this report, if indeed it does come out in the coming days and weeks, that, that we could see as a best case scenario? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty much like what you said. I mean, it might be a little bit better than the first one, but I don't think it's going to be hugely better. Uh, I, I just, I don't think it'll be that different. And just, as you said, maybe more cases, um, but not a lot of data. That's what, it, you know, that's what we're really not getting is mm. data, you know, specifics of some of the cases or, as you said, diagrams, photographs, videos, uh, details about cases. I, I don't think we'll get that. But you know, I suspect it'll go a little bit further than it did before, but I really don't know. I mean, I don't have any more special insight into it, I don't think, than anybody else. Um, and, uh, of course, the classified one is the one that'll be the really important one, and we don't get to see that one. So hopefully the Congress will at least receive something that's more significant than the, what they got before. So, I mean, I think what's most important is what goes to the Congress, and more than, yeah, they're always going to get the good stuff, as people would say. I just wonder, though, in terms of an unclassified report, looking down the line, this is funded to 2026, I believe, is the year. What What is the best case scenario, again, you think that with any political knowledge you have, which will, even as small as it may be, will be more than mine, given I'm based in the UK, what could these reports become 
are we going to get to a point we could get videos or or pictures released to the public or is that still just too much of an ask I don't know. I mean, maybe that will happen, but not necessarily in the context of the of the reports, because um, we do have the possibility of whistleblowers coming forward in the next year or two based on this new legislation that gives more greater protections to them. So there might be additional hearings also in, in the Senate or in, in the House and those venues and through those processes perhaps videos or photographs would be released. So I don't think it's only the report that we, you know, that we can expect mm. for those kinds of things to happen. I think they, they might happen in other ways. Um, so especially if there are additional hearings, perhaps some of the, some of our representatives will want to bring forward some better videos and photos than we saw at the last hearing. Cause I don't think they were too happy with those. So. No, so we'll that, see. That didn't go well. And they couldn't even work VLC <laughs> media player at the time, from what I remember either. Um, listen, I want to ask, and it's like you're reading the screen, that there was a rumoured immunity for whistleblowers. I've spoken with Jacques Vallée recently, Jim Semivan, Gary Nolan, all discussing these possibilities. Um, and I wonder if, if you had a limited window to interview one potential whistleblower or someone that would speak outside of their NDA restraints and the New York Times said, you've got to do it tonight. NDAs are lifted, uh, but we need to in the paper by tomorrow. Do you already know who you would go to? Um, I do know some whistleblower of them. I know one and I know of others, but um, the issue is, is whether they want to come forward or not, not whether I want to report on it. And I think they're wise to wait until the process is in place. They need to follow the process that's being set up for them if they want to have the protections that are being offered. It's a very, very sensitive business for these mm. people. And they're taking a great risk because uh, there could be repercussions against them. You know, there are, there are people that do not want this kind of information to come out. So I would, um, you know, I don't think I would ever be in that situation Um unless there was a competing newspaper that was about to do it and we, we had to beat them or something like that. But I would want to see them go through the required procedure before they go to the press um, for their own protection and for their own legitimacy. Yeah. You know, if they bypass that, it just doesn't give them the credibility that they deserve. But more importantly, it doesn't give them the protection that they have to have, that they need to have. So um, I, you know, I just want them to take their time and do do what's best for them and, and make sure that they're safe. That's what's important. Yeah, I've mentioned on the podcast as well, speaking to several of the, the names I mentioned and other people, even just taking a, a Lou Elizondo, who's the, the biggest name in this at the moment for the length of time he's been discussing the topic and what his role was. People want Lou just to come out on Fox or NBC or CNN and talk about the UFOs, the crash retrieval programs, where the bodies are and if he had that kind of knowledge, but people forget Lou's got a family, Lou's got children, Lou has a life he wants to live in relative peace and harmony, I'm sure as well. And all of that goes away, that safety, that protection. It's not just as easy for someone, is it, to come out? And and do you think even if those options and safeties are afforded or promised to these people, we'll still see a reluctance for individuals to come forward? Yeah, I mean, the, the first point is if for Lou or anybody to talk about that kind of information, they're actually breaking the law, right? This is classified information. So if they do have access to it, 
they it's not just a risk of threats or whatever it's that they're in violation of the law they are they are risking the national security of the united states by talking about classified information and good patriotic people are not going to do that you know for a lot of reasons i mean you just can't ask people to do that to 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 go to jail and break the law I and mean, they've taken oaths not to do that i completely respect that I think what's really special about this procedure that's being put in place is that they're being allowed to release the, the, the NDAs that they've signed are being released. And so they will be able to provide some of this information to, to Congress. Um, but I still think those doing that are still at risk, even though the, the, you know, the oversight is there by Congress, I think they need more, more protection than Congress can provide. And hopefully there will be other areas of government that will provide that. But they still might be at risk because there are forces out there that can pretty much do what they want if they want to, you know, cause harm to somebody. Um, I think one thing to, to remind people is that the it does exempt this, this, this protection, this whistleblower invitation that's sort of being offered to people through this legislation does it, it, um, it does not include people who want to talk about special access programs and really, really top secret programs that they're sort of exempt from this. So I think anything to, you know, so I don't know. I mean, the crash retrieval information is possibly not even covered under this because th those would be in special access programs. So I don't exactly know what kind of information might come through this process given that exemption. Um, uh, but I just think that I, I I think it takes a lot of courage for people to do it when yeah. they, you know, even though they they're given under the law, this protection, there's always a risk and they can, they can receive push, you know, blowback at work. They can have big characters can character can be smeared and mm. they can be, um, you know, there's plenty of ways for people who don't like it to take action against them. And, um, they're risking their jobs, you know, they're risking their reputations and their safety. And um, so we'll see how far the process goes. I mean, I'm hopeful about it, but I also recognize that there are a lot of obstacles to it as well. Yeah. Speaking of obstacles, the Air Force are famously non-communicative when it comes to this topic, um, not particularly helpful. Uh, in terms of any communication, what they want to come out. And I think uh, of of anyone, they are one organization that doesn't want this story to come out and would happily see it go away for various reasons. I've heard you mention and others, Leslie, that the Air Force going, involvement in this goes back 50, 60, 70 years or more, and that maybe some people who were involved in those early cover-ups for what, whatever it may have been, sightings, data, retrievals, had the best intentions at the time and thought they were doing the best thing, but serving their country, national security, but ended up doing things that maybe now would be frowned upon if that came out. And I wonder, in your time researching this, have you tried to reach out to sources within the Air Force often? And what are those attempts at communication like for you, trying to get someone from the Air Force to talk? I don't, I have never talked to anybody who is not, who is current with the Air Force. I just, I don't have any source. I have, I've talked to retired people from, people who have retired from the Air Force. But no, I mean, I, 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 you're right that they're just not 
off, they're not as, as available as people are in the Navy, say. Um, and I, I mean, some people want to hold, I don't know. I think that there should be kind of an immunity granted to anybody who did things in the past that it's just such, it's, you know, the, I don't think we should be going after people who did things in the 1960s or seventies or fifties, yeah. you know, that were, that they thought were the right thing to do for a whole lot of reasons at the time. I just don't think that's productive. And I think if we want the Air Force to cooperate, the best thing we can do is to just let some of that go. But, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm not involved at all with the Air Force. I just don't know uh, that much about their position and how, you know, what kind of, how, who's been reaching out to them and what their relationship is to the current agency, the Arrow. Uh, and I think everyone's hoping for more involvement from them, but I really don't know that much about it. I'm just not involved. Um, but I do not believe in just sort of going after them for things that happened decades ago. I don't think that's a good idea. And I think it'll, it could slow down the process. If we want the Air Force to cooperate, you know, going after them and trying to punish them is not going to help them come forward and help them be part of a positive process by which more and more is revealed and, and by which they are going to cooperate with other agencies. It's just not, it slows the process down and maybe even stops it. Because if they if they feel that that's in their future, they're not going to be supportive of any kind of process of, of, of greater transparency. They're going to feel they have to protect themselves. So it's it's a it's a tricky situation on that level. I think that's a good place, Leslie, to move on to us, the the second part of the show. To be honest, because we've covered a lot of ground there, and it's all tied in quite nicely together. So thank you very much. In the second part, I, I do want to move a little bit into your work on life after death and how that ties in with the UFO topic, and then some listener questions as well. Of course, including the um, inquiry into anomalous experiences and the phenomenon conference. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet, and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast of course on twitter it's at ufo uapam and again folks as always keep looking up you never know what you might see it wasn't a tic tac and not quite a saucer more like a hubcap designed by chaucer a little baroque and quite steampunk like Alice was playing bass for the parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Meditated game of fateful on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs, and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. i
Jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was wet. I helped out my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should take care of me. And I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me. Consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your eyes. Okay.